0: You are listening to Cthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Cthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin MacLeod. Hello and welcome to Cthonia, the podcast related to the Dark Feminine. I'm your host Breach Burke, and this week we are going to be talking about the last of the Mahavidyas, uh, the tenth in the list. And I have placed her last for a reason. Um, And this is the goddess Kamala. Okay, and as I had indicated about um, Bhuvaneshviri and also about Tripura Sundari, these um, goddesses—they—they don't appear very dark. Let's put it that way. They—they appear a lot more auspicious than "quote unquote" inauspicious. and they definitely seem to, um, you know, ferocity and, and uh, fierceness is not definitely not associated with them. They are very approachable for the average um, devotee. Um, but there are differences. They they are reflections of other more traditional deities or aspects of them, and um, and there are some differences. Um, Kamala is a considered to be sort of a the tantric manifestation of Lakshmi, the goddess of true wealth. And um, and she's also connected to the goddess Shri, S-R-I, um, which, you know, we, we hear that a lot as a title, and that's because Shri means respect. Okay. So it's, um, <clears throat> you know, so, so you know, this has to do with respect. It has to do with auspiciousness. It has to do with um, material wealth, um, with prosperity, and also with spiritual wealth. Okay. Um, Kamala is known as the lotus goddess. Okay, and frequently in her iconography, she is pictured not only with lotuses, but also with elephants. Um, And that is at least well, okay. as Lakshmi, Lakshmi is often portrayed with elephants and Kamala is sometimes, as we'll see. Um, And I want to I want to talk a bit about her and her symbolism. And I think also in this particular podcast, I'm going to kind of wrap up the series, because after this, we're going to move on to the Ashtamatrikas, um, the eight um, sort of ferocious uh, mothers. Um, who have to do with, um, who are usually seen as, as warrior goddesses in some fashion, but they are, you know, so we're, we're getting back into darker territory after that. Um, but we do want to make sure that we look at all the Mahavidyas, because all of the aspects, ultimately, uh, are important. Now, um, let me find my first note here. <clears throat> okay. Um, <clears> okay. <throat> First of all, let me let me give you a description of Kamala, <clears throat> and it says um, that what the description that I have, uh, Kamala Mika has a golden complexion. She is being bathed by four large elephants who pour kalashas, or jars of amrita nectar over her. She has four hands. <clears throat> in two hands, she holds two lotuses, and her other two hands are in abaya mudra, which is the fearlessness gesture, and varamudra which is the gesture of conferring boons, respect, respectively. <clears throat> she's shown seating, seated in Padma Asana, which is the lotus position, lotus posture, which most of us are familiar with who practice meditation. Um, and she's sitting on a lotus, which is a symbol of purity. So she's associated with Vimala, the quality of purity. And um, <clears throat> Kamala's origin uh, is said to say, um, sort of as in this um, more cosmical view, says that Mahashakti created the entire universe but her task remained incomplete. Even though the universe was complete, it was unfinished due to the absence of grace. She had transformed herself into Kamala to manifest all types of wealth and prosperity in the world. Only by her appearance as Kamala the world will be prosperous and so she manifested to provide prosperity to the world. So, okay, again, it's not, though, she's not really a separate goddess from Shakti, as none of the Mahavidyas are. She is a manifestation, and she is that manifestation associated with the quality of prosperity. Okay, so that is her um, her association. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about her association with the goddess Shri. Um, and uh, it says... Uh, this is again I'm looking at David Kinsley he says earlier references to com- early references to Kamala call her shri and consistently associate her with positive qualities indeed the name shri means auspicious For example, in the Shatapata Brahmana, she is identified with food, royal power, luster, fortune, and beauty. Her positive qualities and auspicious nature are elaborated in the Sri Shukta, an early hymn in her praise, probably dating back to pre-Buddhist times. She gives wealth and other desired objects to her devotees, is beautiful and adorned with costly ornaments, and is associated with fertility and growth. Okay, now as I mentioned, um, Kamala, Sri, Lakshmi, they're associated with the lotus and the elephant and um, they're both central and uh, Kinsley says that the lotus seems to have two general meanings. first related to life and fertility on a cosmic scale the lotus represents the entire created order because remember um, the lotus grows out of the navel um, of uh, either Vishnu or a Brahma actually is usually um, you know where the, the universe is uh, you know Brahma comes out of a lotus and then from him you know the creation of the world comes out and it's always portrayed as sitting on a lotus Uh, The cosmos, as lotus-like, suggests a world that is organic, vigorous, and beautiful. It is the fecund vigor that's suggested by the lotus that is revealed in Shri. She is the life force that pervades um, creation. And he says, second, especially in relation to Shri, the lotus suggests spiritual purity, power, and authority. So those are the three things she's really associated with. And it makes sense because she is very much associated with royalty and um, the the people of political stature. The lotus seat is a common theme in Hindu and Buddhist iconography. Gods and goddesses, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, are so seated or standing on a lotus. Like the lotus, which is rooted in mud, but whose blossoms are uncontaminated by it, these spiritual beings are are understood to transcend earthly limitations of the world, the mud of existence, as it were. Um, Sri's association with the lotus suggests she symbolizes a certain perfection or state of refinement that transcends the material world, yet is rooted in it. So... Again, um, <clears throat> the lotus is actually quite an, um, a potent image because the the lotus, and of course it's always portrayed as sort of the thousand-petaled lotus, that is actually the name of the um, uh, chakra at the top of the head, what we call the crown chakra, is known as the sahasrara, which is the um, thousand-petaled lotus, and that is considered to be, you know, the, the the highest sort of spiritual state, but it's rooted in in the rest of the system down to the, the muladhara chakra, and Yeah. And so that's the idea. There's actually something I'm I'm reminded of Jung's study of alchemy, where he talks about the transmuting, you know, at least allegorically. He he tended to view this more as a process of consciousness and not having to do with the literal transformation of base metal into gold, because a lot of the idea was that um, the idea is that out of the out of the shit, out of the manure of things, um, you know, gold is formed or that it can come. And we have a very similar idea here with the lotus, the idea of this alchemical idea of from the, the dreck of, um, you know, and if we're speaking on a psychological level um, or depth psychology level, from the dreck of our consciousness, um, you know, the gold is produced, you know, eventually, um, and it is only through, you know, it's just like if you want to plant something, you know, people who keep a compost heap out back, you know, how, how disgusting that can be and how bad it can smell and everything. But that compost is extremely fertile for growing new things. Um, and that is sort of the metaphor here. This is, rep- you know, the lotus represents that. It's the idea that, you know, is rooted in this, this, you know, something that we consider to be dirty or impure in some way, but what comes out of it is something extremely pure. So there's definitely a profound significance there in terms of the way that the, um, you know, what, what we generally consider to be the filth is actually uh, the stuff of life. Um, so, um, you know, so there's, there's, there's a meditation on that. I, this is one of the reasons I have such a, um, I don't know, I don't want to say I have an aversion to the term purity, but I, I worry about its use and I worry about the associations with it. Um, because purity, um, I mean, yeah, purity can be things like, okay, keeping clean and keeping germs that will make you ill away from you and, you know, practicing basic hygiene and, um, you know. Freshening yourself up. I mean, believe me, if you've been outside working all day and then you go in and take a shower, nothing feels good as to wash the dirt off, you know. Um, but by the same token, uh, we can become overzealous in that and decide that any we have to remove anything that we think of as impure or polluted from our lives. And this especially will happen in a Western system where we try to separate the sinful from the non-sinful because, of course, the sinful becomes equated with the impure and the dreck, and we decided something to be eliminated, but nothing grows if you eliminate it, okay? You have to, that's why sex is often considered to be an impure thing, because people say, well, it's animalistic, and it's dirty, but it's like, well, yeah, but, um, you know, but that's how you, that's how you make children, if that's what your goal is, you know? It's a, it's a creative process. Everything creative is dirty in some fashion. You have to get dirty, even if you're, Creating something that, you know, isn't a plant, animal, or, or human being, or whatever. Um, the creative process is messy. I mean, think about anybody. Anybody who's, had a, who's written a book or who has, um, you know, tried to put a certain project together, there's a certain amount of messiness that goes along with that. There's a certain amount of disorder. Um, and that's all part of the system, and I think that's part of the message here as well. Um, <clears throat> now, moving on, Kamala is also associated with the elephant, okay? Okay. And back to Kinsley here, he says the association with the elephant suggests other aspects of her character that are ancient and persistent. One of the most common representations of Sri shows her flanked by two elephants that are showering her with water from their trunks. The elephants have two meanings. According to Hindu tradition, elephants are related to clouds and rain, and hence fertility. And this may also be why Ganesha is an elephant-headed god, because he, he brings that kind of auspiciousness and removes obstacles. Um, second, elephants suggest royal authority. Kings kept stables of elephants, which they rode in processions and used in military campaigns. Kings were held responsible for bringing timely rains and for the fertility of the land generally. Their possession of elephants is probably related to that role as well. Okay, so that has a lot to do with her iconography. So that has, um, so in this case, the elephants not only have to do with, okay, so we've got the, the sort of the mud and the lotus aspect, and now we've got the, the rain, and the necessity of rain to you know even though we like to see the sun uh the necessity of rain to also bring life so there's kind of a subtext there that that which we think of as uh, i mean although water also has a purifying element to it too as we were just saying so um you know these are all the elements that that bring about life and that potentially bring about prosperity okay um i also have in the notes here that um Uh, Kamala is associated with the Graha Shukra, which is just the planet Venus, okay? So um, it said that um, certainly in in Vedic system, um, Vedic astrology, when you look at your chart, if there are are inauspicious aspects in your chart, um, then you request to have a puja done to those particular aspects. So for example, just to give you an example, um, when I first um, left my husband, I had my chart done uh, by a Vedic astrologer. And I was at that time in my uh, K2 phase of life, okay, K2 being um, like the south node of the moon. And generally, it's a considered a time, um, it, it's not considered to be the most auspicious time, although I found in a lot of ways, it was very auspicious for me. Um, but it was, um, you know, it's a time of like, when, when you really should be by yourself, it kind of made sense that I left my husband at that time, because it was like, yeah, this is a time for things to to come to an end for you to be alone, to self-reflect, to, you know, do more spiritual practice. But I remember that the astrologer said, well, you should, you know, have the the, the ashram, have somebody uh, at the temple say, ketu, do ketu puja uh, on your behalf. So um, pujas, yeah, I mean, that's, the idea is that you um, propitiate the planetary aspects almost as though they're deities, because they're, in some sense, they are, because they represent certain qualities, Okay. So Venus is the deity um, or graha that is associated with Kamala. Okay. Um, okay. So what else do we have here? Okay. So let's talk for a minute about Lakshmi, um, because Kamala is a, is the tantric manifestation of Lakshmi. Now Lakshmi as a goddess, again, she has to do with prosperity. She has to do with true wealth, wealth but both material and spiritual. Okay. So she's she's very very favored. Um, certainly in upper caste households, for sure. Um, She's, you know, and and, and even among others, I mean, uh, the festival of Diwali, the festival of lights is associated with Lakshmi. It's driving out a Lakshmi, which we had talked about in the Dumavati episode. because Dumavati tends to be associated with a Lakshmi. And it's interesting that within the Mahavidyas, we have um, aspects associated with both a Lakshmi and Lakshmi um, in the the tantric, um, you know, these tantric visions. Um, now, Lakshmi is considered to be an indulgent and forgiving mother, okay? That's her thing. She often appeals to her husband, who is Vishnu, um, on behalf of devotees, because Vishnu is almost given a, um, a judgmental role, you know, like, a, like a, the wise king who pronounces judgment kind of thing, and that, um, in this case, Lakshmi is sort of one who intercedes. One might think of, again, in Western um, Christian iconography of the Virgin Mary, um, although Lakshmi, I don't think, is portrayed as necessarily virginal, although I don't know that her sexual aspect is um, necessarily emphasized, um, but, she is, uh, but she is considered to be a dutiful and submissive wife to Vishnu, okay? Which, again, that, that's an iconography that, that translates to uh, Western ideas of the divine feminine, okay? Um, now, Lakshmi is associated with the male deities, um, or Sri, you know, because Sri is actually a much older deity, and I think she sort of becomes Lakshmi out of, out of that. And, of course, Kamala being associated with Lakshmi as well. Um, they're all kind of the same. Okay, um, back to Kinsley here. Um, he talks about her, uh, she's associated with several male deities, each of whom suggests aspects of her character. One of her earliest associations is with the god Soma, who is identified with plants and vegetative vigor. It is appropriate that Sri Lakshmi, who is also identified with the vitality of plants, should be linked with him. Some texts say that Sri Lakshmi is the wife of Dharma. Okay, now that's interesting because Dharma has to do with order and and performing your correct social duty duty to obtain prosperity, which is another translation of Sri. Okay, Um, many texts emphasize that in her relationship with Indra, the royal authority and fertility are central. Indra, you might think of he is he is sort of a, a storm god, and he is considered to be king of the gods, which gives him a lot in common with uh, say gods like Yahweh um, or gods like Zeus in the in the Greek um, pantheon. There's definitely or Lug in the in the Celtic. Um, it says, Indra's political fortunes are directly related to Sri Lakshmi in several myths. When she dwells with him, he prospers politically and economically. When she abandons him or lives with one of his adversaries, he is bereft of royal authority and wealth. The myths make it clear that kingly power, authority, and prosperity are directly related to Sri and that without her, a king cannot succeed. Um, so this is it. She's, she's you, know, the, the, you see all of these male gods who are powerless without these female forces behind them um it indicates he indicates that uh, lakshmi and indra complement and reinforce each other in this respect as he is strongly identified with bringing rain hence the elephant connection there a symbol of fertility and his favorite weapon is the thunderbolt um okay so the other association that kinsley mentions is the Sri Lakshmi's association with the god Kubera, another example of her identification with wealth, vegetative growth, and fertility. Kubera is related to wealth. He is said to be the possessor and distributor of wealth and to possess and guard the earth's treasure. Uh, in some sense, that would, that would liken him to Hades or Pluto because Pluton, Pluton is another aspect that has to do with wealth or, you know, the, the treasures that come, you know, we, you know, like I said, you know, precious gems, gold, those all come from the earth. He is also said to be leader of the yakshas, creatures who dwell in the woods and forests and promote the growth of plants. So in general, we see, um, obviously, in a society that um, relies on, I mean, obviously, for any of us to have food, even though we rarely see the process, um, you know, agriculture, you know, livestock, all these things are what keep us alive. So it makes sense that you would be associated with that kind of life, vegetative life in particular, um, you know, it, because and then... Um, you know, so that which which would be sort of another underlying element of prosperity is, you know, having a bountiful harvest. OK, um, now, again, her relationship to Vishnu, um, that's that's one of the central things uh, of Lakshmi herself. It says and he says in Hindu myth, their association begins as a result of the churning of the ocean of milk. We're back to that one by the gods and demons to seek the elixir of immortality or Amrita. In the process of churning, they stir up desirable objects and beings, among whom is Lakshmi. This lovely goddess is granted to Vishnu, who is the leader of gods in this myth. Um, And Vishnu, of course, is strongly associated with kingship. Um, You know, again, Brahma is, is the Brahma who comes out of the lotus of his navel is his dream. So Vishnu is sort of precedes Brahma. He's depicted as a divine king. His avatars all serve to uphold the social and political order and to promote dharma. He supports righteous kings on earth through whom he is said to uphold society. Um, So it makes sense that Lakshmi would be associated with him. Um, And again, she's portrayed as loyal, modest, and loving. She's described as occupied with domestic chores, such as cooking, and is typically depicted as subservient to her husband. Um, Iconographically, she is often shown massaging Vishnu's feet and is much smaller than he. Her submissive position is clearly conveyed in an image from uh, Badami in which she, he sits on a high stool while she sits on the ground and leans on him, her right hand on his knee, which is kind of a submissive and appealing. That's actually the posture of um, um, uh, appealing to you know to someone's mercy or to some, you know put you know um, <clears throat> that you, you see this a lot. like I'm, I'm thinking of um, the Greek tragedy of, um, uh, Hecabe, or Hec- uh, hecuba where she uh where uh, euripides has her get down on her knees and put and, and tries to you know put her hand on odysseus's knee and of course he wants to turn away from her because that's that's the app that that's the appeal the supplication for mercy and she says to him don't don't think i'm going to appeal for your mercy you know but but she does but she gets down on her knees in that posture as though to say <clears throat> i'm submitting myself to you <clears throat> okay um her cosmic role, okay, back to Lakshmi here, as is particularly striking in the Lakshmi Tantra, a popular pancharatara, um, uh, panchara, pan, Pancharatra, thank you, I'm not saying it wrong, pan, Pancharatra text, <clears throat> which says that she single-handedly undertakes the creation of the universe with only one billionth a part of herself. The text describes Lakshmi as pervading the entire created order and is regulating the social and moral orders as well. In effect, in this text, she takes over the roles of Vishnu as creator of the universe and the regulator of dharma. Okay, um, <clears throat> now he also, they also mention in the Vaishnava school of South India, um, she is she's um, the mediator between the devotees and Vishnu in this particular um, school of, of, of Vaishnavite thought. So that is, um, and he and he is inclined to be stern and righteous, and he is she moderates his character okay so all right so this is what we know about um about lakshmi and about her relationship she is a deity very much um associated you know she's she she acts as a support moderator and a balance to the male deities at the same time she is sort of a source considered to be a source of prosperity um and material wealth that's not entirely unlike other mythologies in which you know, the earth mother, you know, whether it be Gaia or whether it be some other kind of um, name that we use, you know, in whatever culture for the earth mother, you know, it is the earth mother who brings forth the fruits, whether it be something that uh, we grow or something that we mine, because think about it, our money and our material wealth all comes from stuff, you know, it's all based on gold or it's based, or at least in theory, it's based on gold, Um comes from things that are from the earth so in that sense she is kind of almost uh, a type of earth mother she her she is the that embodiment of the manifestation of prosperity so this is going to raise the question for us at this point of why is she a mahavidya i mean we you can kind of understand that but at the same time when we look at the character of the mahavidyas we're like hmm none of them really seem. they all seem to be if she is there to uphold the social order the goddesses of the, Mahav- the Mahavidyas do not uphold the social order. So it's kind of like, okay, so what? What? what is Kamala? What is this what is, is this tantric Kamala? Like, how is she, is she, I mean, she is Lakshmi. She definitely has the attributes of Lakshmi. But as Kinsley has says, and uh, th- those that um, the Shaktas that he has spoken to, um, it is though Kamala is um, selectively, um, has selective aspects of Lakshmi. Okay, so let's talk about the differences. First of all, one of the things that's noted is that Kamala is frequently shown without Vishnu. Okay, you never see images of her with Vishnu. Now, does this mean that Kamala is unmarried? Uh, well, I don't think any of that's explicitly stated, but there is definitely the sense of independence from her husband. So, okay, so now we have this Kamala, the, the this... this um, goddess of prosperity and this this compassionate intervener with her judge husband which again has more of a patriarchal flavor to it um kamala is stands alone she does not um she she is not portrayed as a mahavidya with vishnu um and while they say her her association with elephants does persist she's not often many times she is not pictured with elephants OK, when she is portrayed as Kamala, she's portrayed by herself sitting on a lotus, she's still associated with the lotus. Um, and in the Mahavidya um, stories, she's associated more with Shiva than with Vishnu, which actually does make sense. Because when we think about Shiva, um, she, you know, again, the, the, the origin story of the Mahavidyas, they are the 10 manifestations of Parvati. So if Kamala is a manifestation of Parvati, then she's the spouse of Shiva. She's not the spouse of, um, uh, of Vishnu. Okay, um, so let me, let me just, I'm going to read a little bit on that from here. Um, he says, um, Vish, uh, Kinsley says on page 229, Vaishnava connections do not dominate Kamala's incarnation as a Mahavidya. Although she is linked to Vishnu from time to time, she's rarely associated with Vaishnava avatars or their consorts, as one might expect. She's rarely identified with Sita, Radha, or Rukmini. Though she is somehow, sometimes associated with Vahari and Vaishnavi, two of the okay, We're actually going to look at the Ashtamatrikas. We're going to look at eight. So yeah, and those are two very fierce aspects. Okay, um, In fact, Kamala in her Mahavidya form seems to be associated or identified as frequently with Shiva or Shiva's consort as she is with Vishnu. Her thousand name him in the Shakta Pramoda, for example, calls her Shiva, Rodri, Gori. She whose bliss is Shiva, she who is dear to the one who does the Tandava dance, which is Shiva, Sati, and Kapali. Okay, so these are all, these all connect her with, uh, with Shakti, okay? Again, this is keeping with the tendency to associate goddesses with Shiva and consistent with the accounts of the origins of the Mahavidyas, which usually feature Shiva, right? We've, we've already said that um now here's the other thing she's also got fearsome qualities okay you would not imagine a goddess like this to have fearsome qualities but as a Mahavidya her um her uh you know um what do we call it the um why am I not remembering the name for that um for the 108 names all of a sudden it's like that name's gone out I mean I know there's the Sahasranama Stotras but um there's also the 108 names and basically in her uh, Namavalis and in her Stotras um, in the Shakta Pramoda, she's called Kalarachi, which is another fearsome name for Kali. We're going to talk about Kalarachi um, at another point. She who wears a garland of skulls. She whose form is very terrible. Gora. Gora means uh, generally has to do with something that's, that's, very, that's very awful. Abhima, which is terrible, and tamasi, which is darkness, literally she who is the tamas guna, okay, which would associate her with the forbidden things. Although benign and auspicious qualities dominate her character as a Mahavidya, a fearsome fearsome and dangerous dimension is suggested in these epithets. and he notes that another feature that characterizes her or, or is but is weak that, that characterizes Kamala, but is absent from her worship and cult outside the Mahavidyas, or at least it's very weak, is that as a demon slayer. Um Outside the Mahavidyas, Lakshmi is strongly associated with Vishnu and Durga, who are the demon slayers par excellence in Hindu mythology. Lakshmi herself, however, does not take an active part. She's primarily a witness to Vishnu or his avatars while they slay demons or is displayed with Durga during Durga Puja. because She's one of the um, the, the three devis, uh, Durga, Lakshmi, and Saraswati, um, where she is said to be Durga's daughter. There are female Vaishnavite goddesses who slay demons in the Devi Mahatmya, namely Vaishnavi, Vahari, and uh, Narasimi, which, yeah, so that would associate her with the Matrikas. None of these, though, is directly identified with Lakshmi. Um, her a- epithets in the Shakta Paramodha, though, uh, give her the epithets directly identifying her with the demon-slaying goddess Durga or one of Durga's demon-slaying helpers. She is called, for example, slayer of Madhu, Madhu and Kaitaba, slayer of Shumba and Nishumba, and also called Durga. And as I said, they identify her with Narasimi, Varahi, and, um, you know, who are these as well. Again, we are going to talk about them when we get into the discussion of the Matrikas. But uh, so, yeah, so Kamala has this sort of um, fierce aspect that is not, I mean, that's, that's not considered to be the dominant feature of her character, but it's there. And, you know, and again, this, this may have to do with sort of the, the, double-edged um meaning of the quality of prosperity um you know the way you know what what it can mean and what it means to um to have things or to to, you know to be taken away or or what the dangers are actually of pursuing um material interests um now one of the things um Kinsley had notes you know she is as I said she is the 10th Mahavidya so out of the 10 Kali is one Tara is two um Tripura Sundari is three and so on and so forth Okay, so we go through all the Mahavidyas, and Kamala is the last one. And you may, and as I said, I've, I've not done these in any order, but the, um, the Shaktas have said that, uh, and the Tantric practitioners have said, yes, there is a meaning to the order. And they'll say that Kali is the strongest and that Kamala is the weakest. Um, and, so, and, that, and that doesn't seem like that's entirely true. It's not that Kamala is weak. But um, as it's been said, one has to struggle with Kali, but they're pampered by Kamala. So it's almost like what I had said, and I, I think I mentioned this in the last um, podcast, or at least a couple back. Um, if, if those of you who practice Kabbalah and think about the Tree of Life as moving from the lightest point at Keter, which is, connect, uh, with Keter, which is connected to the Ein Sof and the, the Limitless Light, um, and its relationship to Malkut, which represents kingdom, which represents the earth and, and the world, uh, frequently in in Hebrew or, or Jewish thinking, the Shekinah dwells in Malkut, which is the lowest Sephirah, the tenth the tenth Sephirah. Mind you, there are ten Sephirah as well. It might be interesting to see. Um, not that there's any. Mind you, there's no ancient connection between Kabbalah and um, and, and uh, tantric practice, but it would be interesting to see how well um, the ten Sephirah might match up in some fashion with uh these particular goddesses i haven't actually done that but that might be an interesting thing to an interesting thing to meditate on i I wouldn't i would not look for a correspondence there where there may not be one but the point that i am making is that the uh the tree of life is one so therefore um yeah the, the tree of life is one so therefore um you know, you, you have these ten Sephiroth, and one appears to be closer to the spiritual, and one appears to be closer to the material, just as here we have Kali, who seems to deal more with the raw, ultimate truth, um, whereas Kamala has to do with the, the prettiness of nature and ha- acquisitions of things and living in the world. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's more a, a case of showing you that, that the totality of creation is divine. There's not a piece of it. One is not superior to the other. It's just that one is closer to um, raw consciousness and one is more about the manifest world, okay? Um, so she's, her, but, but Kamala is probably a very easy goddess to worship. It's not, um, there, there's not a whole lot of danger associated with worshiping Kamala where there might be with some of the other Mahavidyas. Okay, And some say it's also the fact that she is so focused on, well, I shouldn't say she's focused, but those who worship her tend to be more focused on gaining material status or social or political status. Um, So therefore, those are considered to be very worldly goals, which would kind of put her in with Tantra, because Tantra is about living in and experiencing the world and not renouncing it all in the name of spirituality. Okay. Um, not that that might not be a path that some tantras take, but but it's but there's definitely a sense of balancing the material and the spiritual world. okay. So um, let's see. okay, I have one other ref, uh, reflection on Kamala here. Um, let me see. Okay. So this is just this is just some reflections now that I'm gonna um, go into. Um, The profit of worshipping Kamala or Lakshmi, and this is something I'm taking from, again, one of the um, uh, Tantra sites, um, for the highest spiritual good is not only the blessings of material security, but of spiritual progress. Kamala teaches commitment to the spiritual path through riddance of drama of our daily lives and bitterness towards others. The true nature of Kamala is the radiant beauty of the cosmos that is manifest in the material world. Kamala is the spirit of nature itself, and she is manifest in the natural world. She can be worshipped by simply spending time in nature and appreciating its profound beauty. Through recognition of her beauty in the natural world, an individual moves further towards liberation spiritual follower who detaches the fruits of action and finds enjoyments in the acts of service, generosity, and prayer for their own sake can truly begin to grasp the inner nature of Kamala, the light of divine consciousness and connection with the self. Kamala embodies the spirit of giving, receiving graciously and gratefully instead of with greed. She teaches that true wealth is measured by generosity, spiritual depth, and freedom from ego-driven desires. When followers ask something of Kamala and greed, she may grant desires with all of the associated negative consequences. Just going to pause there and think about um, Dionysus or Bacchus granting King Midas his um, his golden touch. You know, you you everything you touch turns to gold. Well, that includes your food and your beloved daughter and this and that, you know. You you can the you know there's 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 a relationship there of yes I'll grant you your wish but um there's a trickster trickster ish element there okay Uh, Kamala does have the tendency to remind us that she's also the goddess Kali who teaches detachment and surrender this helps remind followers to trust the way as they find a spiritual path that serves the highest good instead of be seeing being seduced by worldly desires for the sake of material gain Um, it's not I want to be clear though there's not a renunciation can't say that right, renunciation of the spiritual world, there's more of a, it's more of the idea that the spiritual world, the material world has to be put in proper perspective and treated respectfully, okay, Um, but it doesn't mean that you, um, that life should not be enjoyed or that you should never indulge, but just that um, if that's your entire goal in life, then you know, you're going to have the consequences associated with that. Um, And it says, in this way, Kamala can be seen as a teacher of financial responsibility in terms of learning to save, paying off debt, investing wisely, and without greed, and not taking what is not freely given, making charitable offerings, and not spending more than can be afforded. Um, Yeah, boy, that's been a lesson recently, hasn't it, Um, with everything that's gone on um, with everyone being... Quarantine because of the pandemic. I hate to continue bring that up during these podcasts, but but it seems to me that that's a very um, hefty world lesson that we're we're faced with at this time. Okay. Um, okay. So. Just to continue, just to reflect sort of on the Mahavidyas in general. So, okay, so we've reached Kamala, we've reached this, she's sort of our, the, the Malkut. She's the, she's the one that um, represents um, that sort of prosperity that's both, and, and the wise handling of the material world. Um, but her tantric aspect, like I said, there are fierce aspects and there are independent aspects. And this makes us kind of reflect on the whole Mahavidya story as a whole. Um, you know, there's, there's, first of all, we look at what I've just said, you know, the idea that divine permeates all creation. There's not a separation between what is considered auspicious and inauspicious, um, even though that's frequently, and I, I think what we can say is that if we're looking at any, any religious system in terms of the social order, okay, um, a lot of the injunctions between right action and wrong action just have to do with, um, controlling one's impulses because we have to live with other people. You know, this is not, you know, we need to take care of ourselves and we need to live with other people. And our natural behaviors are not always, actually, more, more often than not, our, our natural inclinations are not the best ones. Um, when we gain something, we're inclined to want more of it. You know, we, we're inclined towards greed. When you have a, a group over a certain size, I think Skinner had said it was more than 11 people, but um, probably it's even less than that. You can have a group of people, if you just have one person who wants to be in charge of everything, and wants to control everybody else and everything else that's going on, that's just enough to disrupt the dynamic. So you have certain checks and balances, as it were, in place to try to keep, um, keep things in balance so everybody can live together and everybody can live the life that they have, you know, um, because living life is part of it. I mean, we have talked a lot about death, but living life is part of it, right? And, um, and the Mahavidyas seem to represent every part of that cycle, um, you know, some of them seem to be more associated with death, uh the abyss, and like Kali, for example, uh Dumavati, who has to do with the void, um, between life and death, um, and you know, the sort of the eventual rebirth. So we we see all these these goddesses, Dumavati, I think, is somewhere in the middle, so she's the void, and then we start to see these these um this sort of the rebirth, these goddesses of um creation and prosperity and uh preservation. So the Mahavidyas as a whole, you could almost represent them. They actually appear to Shiva in a circle, um, both above, below, and around him. And that would also suggest a cyclical nature to them as well. They represent that cycle of creation, preservation, and destruction. Um, In the Ten Mahavidyas, we see all aspects of the feminine. um, And that's reflected in the Tridevas to Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, or Rudra in some versions. Uh, as creator, preserver, and destroyer, okay, all of these emanate from the Sri Chakra, they all emanate from the Shakti, uh, the Adipara Shakti, okay, and all of them have connections to Shiva, because ultimately, we're in the sphere of time, and everything comes to an end, and Shiva is associated, I mean, he is also associated with creating life in his relationship to Shakti, but, um, or to Parvati, but there, but also, um, you know, the fact that everything is temporal, everything comes to an end, Okay, um, all of them have very have fierce aspects, even even gentle Kamala has fierce aspects, um, even if they're understated. Uh, on some level, they're all part of the same Shakti and they're not mutually exclusive to each other. It's very easy to look at all of them and we, we look at what their differences are, but you'll notice that some of them have the same names or if you look at their stotras, they're listed as, um, you know, Um, you know, Lalita Tripura Sundari will be described as actually all of these, Kali, Bhuvaneshviri, um, you know, uh, I mean, they're all in her stotra and you say, well, isn't that, aren't those separate goddesses? Well, no, they're, no, they're technically, they're all aspects of each other because they all in a complicated way represent different aspects of the same, uh, manifestation of, of existence, um and that's something that's also hard for the West to understand. There's a lot of people, um, especially when I'm teaching religion, people who will say, oh, well, you know, um, there's, there's a video that came out, um, many years ago. I think it was, um, the, I, I forget what it was called. The search for, um, it wasn't in search of, that's different. Um, this guy, this guy Ron with a really bad suit, 70s suit, he was the one who would uh, mo- um, narrated this series, but it was all in the different major world religions. And, um, it, the one that I was thinking of in particular with him was um, uh, with um, was the one that on Hinduism which is called 300 million gods and that is something that people have um, in the West when I talk about it they're like well I don't understand how you can worship 300 million gods and it's like understand that what we're talking about is... The, all the aspects of creation. Creation is very complicated. You can't reduce it or simplify it to um, one thing or two forces. I mean, we may talk about one God in the West, and many people, you know, people are very insistent to me, well, God is one. Um, well, uh, then... then then god is is you know cracked up in a lot of ways i mean it's not suggesting that they there even in hinduism like i said i've always said hinduism is more monistic than polytheistic even though it's apparently polytheistic because the underlying reality is unified that's actually the ultimate truth that the separation that you see is an illusion and it's it's ironic in a way that um the, the religions, the monotheistic religions that talk about one God, are the ones so focused on separation. The religion that has many gods uh, is the one that's focused on unity. So it's 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 weird because um, they kind of they're kind of the reverse of each other in a lot of ways. Um, but all of these gods and goddesses, they they show the complexity of it. They show. Um, how far beyond thought a lot of this is. I mean, we, we try to meditate on these. these. This is just a way for us to connect with and meditate on those qualities, but they're they're so vastly different from, you know, they, they, what we're thinking of as, as the divine is embedded in our day-to-day experience, but we frequently miss it because we are so focused on, on the separateness or we are so focused on um, just certain aspects or certain goals of our own that, you know, a lot of times you can miss it. And I think in Hinduism, when you have, you know, okay, I've bought a car, I'm going to do a puja to Ganesha. Oh, I've done this, I'm going to do a puja. It's reminding you of the divine that's, that's present in everything. And, um, and, and these kind of represent this, this very deep reality, which is very awesome, very terrible, um, because it includes death. Okay, and this is the way that the, the East negotiates death. I mean, death is not an, an ultimate ending. You know, when they burn everything, everything dies, then everything comes back again. But it's uh, you know, but there's this definite sense of, um, you know the, the complexity. And, and the thing is, and the origin is feminine. The origin is Mahashakti, And that is, um, you know, and, and that, that that very terrifying um, mysterious, but also as we can see, benevolent female force. The Tantra here tries to show all the aspects. Um, which is why I like I said for in a discussion of the dark feminine, to me this is like the ultimate expression it shows you all of the manifestations of the feminine and it really allows you to look at all these different aspects and think about how you relate to those different aspects and um you know if for example if you only exclusively relate to the one having to do with prosperity and material gain well then um that's just more that's more objectified that is one thing that's been said about laksh you know some of these goddesses is that they tend to be viewed more as some of them is more as objects than as um you know being active um so like for example Lash- lakshmi sitting passively next to vishnu um there's this you know there's uh you know the the other uh, mahavidyas that are closer to that source are considered to be dynamic and active which again if we think of the yin yang concept we don't tend to think of the feminine as dynamic and active but in, in but in tantra and, in, and and the root is we 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 associate the feminine with passivity but the reality is that the feminine is, uh, is the root of everything and is the active force. Uh, it has its passive aspects, too, but it's everything. It encompasses everything. Okay? And here with the Mahavidyas, we're seeing all of those different aspects um, and their relationship to each other. And they're not mutually exclusive. Okay, Uh, there's the importance of sex and the material world in this system. Okay, those things are not rejected as being somehow sinful or um, to be avoided. Not that there aren't people, sages and um, renunciates and practitioners who don't um, disengage themselves from those things. Um, But it's understood at, at, at the deepest level, that those things are important. I think they, again, in, in the interest of people maintaining the order, they don't generally advise that the average person indulge in these kinds of things. Um, but by the same token, you know, once once you, um, I don't know, once you have a certain respect and understanding for the world, then that's kind of like, okay, that that's why you have the sages like you do with uh, Tara, where um, he, um, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's practiced all these austerities for years and then is told that the truth comes in the practice of the five forbidden things, that that's the proper worship of Tara. So, you know, you have these these different elements where, you know, that, that, that has a place. And we need to stop thinking in terms of sinful and not sinful and, and placing judgments on people. There are judgments with the law in terms of whether your actions are harmful and destructive to somebody else in society. That's the way it works. But the idea that these, all of these things, are inherently things that you, um, that are evil and that you should avoid, that's that's really turned on its head here, okay? And it's just simply not true, okay? Um, so there's all this, and there's also kind of a tricksterish element to the Mahavidyas. There's only something um, that subverts the natural order or subverts the social order in some way. Um, and lastly, they all have to do with this fullness of consciousness and power through uh, Adipara Shakti, you know, this sort of um, the root of the feminine consciousness. And um, again, if you've experienced the Shakti of any kind in, in meditation, if you, you know, you might have even experienced it another way. It might not even be through any kind of Hindu or meditative practice. There's, you can certainly experience it through um, certain varieties of Western religion. But when you experience it, it's something, I mean, that's, that's a very, very potent energy, and if it's not um, properly moderated in the body, it, it can be actually be harmful. But, but it is your life force energy, and it's, it's, it's again, it's just like the electricity in your house. If you've got old wiring and, and a faulty box, then it's probably going to burn down. Similarly, you know, you want to make sure that, uh, I suppose that you're up to code, right, that everything is is, is working as it should. So the Mahavidyas represent um, all the aspects of that power, they represent what's dangerous about them, but also how engaging them, um, how, how important it is to engage them in spite of the danger, um, you know, depending on where you're at. I mean, obviously, someone who's, uh, <laughs> who's not ready for that shouldn't just jump right in, but um, it's, you know, the, this is not an aspect of light to be rejected as an evil. And with that, I'm going to end this uh, series on the Mahavidyas. We will start with the Matrikas in the next episode. Um, again, I will direct you to kathonia.net. Please check out um, not only where all podcasts are listed, but also uh, all the, U- the my YouTube channel is connected in there and all of my related services and also my writings and other work. Um, if you wish to support, uh, patreon.com slash um, uh, again, thank you to any new subscribers, and I really appreciate the ones who have been around for a while. And, um, social media, chthonia podcast, one word, Twitter and Instagram, two words on Facebook, and chthonia on, uh, YouTube. Um, and with that, uh, I wish you all well, until the next episode.